it's, it's interesting that that um because i i for some reason i thought you might have still actually been in japan um i just sort of had a cursory glance and then simon actually said oh it looks like uh, fernando's in london <laughs> no i am um, uh much to my chagrin i'm in london um it would have this sounds really weird, but it would have been nice to go through this in Japan with my house, with my music studio and my sort of workshop space and everything. Um, but I moved to London at the end of 2019 um, with a plan to, we were going to renovate this house that we've got here uh, and I was going to get a studio space somewhere in the neighbourhood. Um, and then pandemic happened um so all my stuff is in storage basically um but we're neighbors fernando i'm also you know i'm also in london we must be just down the road from each other um yeah can can you hear that ambulance going past yeah that's that's the one i can <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so it's it's just been it's just been odd i arrived here and didn't really have time to get to know anybody or make any connections or friends um and uh, yeah, and I was, you know, flew back from seeing my parents in Australia in in time to think, why hasn't the country locked down yet? And uh, sort of cancelled everything. And then two weeks later, we had lockdown and I've sort of been here ever since. Have, is that, so are you saying this is your f- first time living in the UK or? No, I lived in the UK uh, about 20 years ago. So okay, so a while ago, yeah. In a, in a previous life as an academic um and uh i left the uk in 2003 no 2001 mm. one of those two um to go live in india and then from india i went to hong kong and singapore and we met in japan wow yeah no i i was actually thinking about that today just the first time um you and i met um uh, when I believe it, it might have been at Tachi Studios, and uh, we're just one of the kind of the creative meetups, Tokyo creative that sounds meetups. About right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I definitely remember at that time uh, being inspired by your story and just kind of your approach to things. Um, and you know, in a in a roundabout way, you know, kind of reconnecting and sort of following some of the ideas that you were talking about then around technology and creativity and things, which is quite inspiring for me then. And I didn't really fully understand it. And now coming back to it, um, how important it is, kind of uh, evergreen in a way. Um, So, yeah, Japan, we were there. How long were you in in Japan for? Six years. Wow. And you've still got a a place there, right? A studio and... Yeah, so um, I I lived in Tokyo... um, uh, I don't have that place anymore, but while I was there, I built uh, a cabin in the woods, basically. So I've got a place in the mountains. That um, again, it would have been, it was funny when we were building it because I used to joke with my daughter that, you know, when the zombie apocalypse comes, we can all go and hide out here and raise chickens and, you know, build a little pond and, and have salmon or something. Um, but we weren't able to get back there. But I've got a little place up in the mountains. Um, which was was really built as a as a retreat and also as a place to do photography and writing. Yeah, as so, in the countryside, I guess. Yeah, it's 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 in the middle of nowhere. It's it's middle of nowhere, Nagano. Like like Japan, it's actually pretty convenient to get to by you know a train and a bus. But it's 
just looking at a river and a mountain and that's about it. It's really interesting that difference between, say, the city, Tokyo, uh, certainly, and and the countryside. There's this this huge divide, and I always think back and wonder, you know, I, I should have spent more time in the countryside because I really enjoyed that. Um, one of my favorite places uh, was Shizuoka, and uh, spending time in the, the old ryokans and kind of following in the footsteps of the old uh, the old writers and whatnot. And uh, Nagano is, is nice as well, and and just sort of getting away from the city. And I feel uh, Simon potentially you might agree with this, but Tokyo has, is quite a big place, and it, it has sort of a, a different mode of operation to the countryside. Um, yeah, and it really sort of negatively affects you um, quite easily. Whereas yeah, it being, can, you know, spending it can. time, yeah, spending time in the countryside, and you just feel so refreshed. But was there a reason you chose Nagano? I. I like mountains. I like skiing. I like the countryside. Um, I had the opportunity to to do a bit of hiking um, on the old like Hokkaido Way and the Kisa Road, um, and just that bend of when you go through through Gifu up into the snow country and then back out of the snow country towards Karuizawa. I just think that's all spectacular. It's, it's fantastic, yeah. And I thought if I want to have a place that I can use as an excuse to go one hour in any direction and have something amazing to explore, that looked like a pretty good place to be. Yeah, I mean, Niigata for me is one of the places that's really close to my heart. I've spent a little bit of time just sort of traveling through uh, Kashiwazaki and, and that sort of area, and it really is snow country. And um there's that famous line from from Kawabata Yasunari, you know, the Kokyo no Nagai Tonoru, you know, the, I entered through the long tunnel and then I arrived in, in, in snow country. And um, I always remember being enchanted by just the, the little country trains and the dinky stations and just sort of the, how slow and quiet everything was um, and uh, spending a little, just a little bit of time out there. And, and just the, you know, you pass through those tunnels and you, you arrive and there's something different in the air you know yeah. um it really is it is quite beautiful and i think you know looking at you know i was in tokyo for five years and um it, you know it, it is concrete and, and in a way the, the concrete are their own their own mountains you know they're sort of there's this built environment but spending time in the countryside um it, it is important and now you're you're in london so you're sort of back in the city and um do you have a, a getaway in the uk at all that you can sort of go to or no, I mean I live close to a large park, mm. um, which sounds like a bit of a cop out. But actually, during the pandemic and during the lockdowns and everything else, being able to almost cross the road and be in a big park was um, was actually quite a gift. And I think it helped keep me sane. I can, you know, I can go, I can walk for an hour, an hour and a half in there um, comfortably without yeah. sort of doubling over myself. Yeah. Um, and that's enough time, you know, just to, just around some trees and some birds and with people further away from you, um, you, you almost start to feel like you're calming down. Um, it's, it's that, yeah, that sort of subconscious work, right, where you're, uh, you, you, you perform an action that you know is going to enable you to get into a more relaxed state. And um, it is easy in this modern world to just uh, uh, let, the busyness of everything kind of overwhelm you. And uh, uh, I mean, to, to be honest, for myself lately, I'd say I've probably at, 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 probably at a low point in my life just with everything going on. Um, 
And it's important, you know, to come back to that and think, well, what is what are the things that you can do to come back and kind of ground yourself and and kind of uh, you know reset things a little bit and nature and going out for walks. So I think we've talked a little bit about this before, Simon, haven't we? Just mm-hmm. getting out of the house and and kind of leaving your you know leaving things behind in, in that space that you're in, that mental space, and then going out and, and doing something uh, different. It sounds like um, Fernanda, you had quite a positive experience during lockdown, you know, going out to your local park and sort of de-stressing, as you said. Was there anything else positive that came out of the lockdown for you? Yeah, I, I, I'm hesitant to describe it as a positive experience all around. I, I think there was, I think there was plenty that was, um, that was dark and hard about the whole thing and being separated from family and things like that has been really difficult and it it massively interrupted my plans for what I thought I would be doing with 2020 mm. um which we can talk about later maybe um but I think the big positive for me was that I you know early on I thought what can I I kind of entered this mode where I thought this is going to go on for a long time I think a lot of people were like you know well it'll be over by the summer and you know It'll be an inconvenience for a few weeks. And I thought, no, this is actually probably going to, I mean, this could go on for three or four years. So what can I do here? Um, and I looked at my artistic practice and I thought, well, I have a fantastic studio full of music gear that is in storage and that's not going to come out anytime soon. And my photography has usually been built around travel and nature and landscapes and I can't really do that either, but I can write. So I'm going to double down on writing. Um, and I was planning to write a book during 2020, but the nature of that book wasn't going to work. So I really focused on writing for my blog, writing about um, creativity, writing about the influence of technology on our well-being. Um, and I've had two, it's coming out, it feels like it's approaching two years worth of really solid writing. Um, and that's been a good time of um, exploration of, I was going to use the word research, but that's a bit of a dodgy word to use at the moment in the pandemic. But um, but definitely a lot of like thinking, reflection, um, I guess self-correction around some of my beliefs. Um, and, and yeah, and I think just focusing on the thing that I could do in this moment, in this space, mm. I think that proved to be a decision that kept paying off positively. That's incredible to hear. Yeah, that's really great. I'm, I am, I'm interested. You mentioned the, the correction of your beliefs. Is that something in terms of, say, a, a personal belief or just a, a general sort of something that you hold um, as, as, as sort of you, you once held as a fact or is that something you could tell us a little bit more about? I, I think I, I generally tend to err on the side of being um, pretty optimistic and pretty optimistic about human nature. Um and I think during the pandemic, we've seen, like we've seen a lot of really good human behaviour, but we've also seen a lot of stuff that I've I've been very surprised by people's unwillingness to cooperate at times. I've been very surprised by sort of a general air of, I guess, judgmentalism, to use a bit of a cliche, about people and about people's situations. Um I've been very surprised by the lack of by the lack of curiosity about how people are experiencing this in other parts of the world. Um, 
it was infuriating here in the UK to watch the news sort of presenting the pandemic or how to respond to the pandemic a certain way. And then you'd be reading news from other parts of the world and going, well, they've actually started doing this thing and it seems to work and it's maybe less restrictive than what we're doing, but it's a slight change. Why can't we learn from them? And it felt like I would read the news from Australia and it was, again, very insular. And I think I had to I had to kind of think about, well, what's going on here in terms of how people experience uncertainty or how they process fear or how they process information or whether journalism is quite working now the way I think it used to work or the way I assumed that it worked. Um, so a lot of that sort of stuff. And it's been, um, I think there's a lot of things happening at the moment that are, um, that have kind of accelerated as a result of the pandemic, but they're trends we've been seeing for a while. Sorry, what sort of trends would you think those are? I think, um, well, I think we've been in a, in a sort of long-term drift towards surveillance capitalism. Um, and I think that's kind of accelerated now. Um, and I don't necessarily just mean that in terms of like governments seeking control in, in lockdown or things like that. There's, there's part of that, but I think also um, like I got, I got this thing in the mail um, that was called a participation survey. And it was from the government and it was like a census, but it wasn't a census. And it kind of looked like I had to do it, but it never said like it was compulsory, but I had to participate sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was asking me a whole bunch of questions about um, do I use parks very often? Do I use local libraries? Do I do, uh, do I have learning experiences in the community? All these kinds of things, which are, are issues that, you know, governments have been, there's been a progressive sort of lowering of funding for things like public libraries for a long time. And this whole idea of whether we even need public libraries anymore because everything is digital, right? Um, And so it's asking me all those kind of questions, but it's also asking me all these questions about how I use social media, what kind of content I use on social media, how do I share, how do I feel about the things that I share? Do I research the stuff that I share before I share it? And I think that's a whole lot of really detailed information that the government is going to have connected to my address, right? It's not really randomised. It's connected to my address. And the kicker is that the survey isn't been run by the Office of National Statistics or something like that. It's been run by the Kantar Group, which is a big, like, PR, um, corporate relations uh, entity on behalf of the government, so I think it's I think it's things like that that feel like they've accelerated during this time. Yeah, no, no it is interesting you mentioned that. I, I feel, uh, I mean, very similar. Um, you know, just uh, yesterday, you know, we've got uh, uh, got an email, um, you know, regarding um, some of these uh, vaccine certificates that are coming to New Zealand, um, and yeah. just sort of some of the privacy and, and data implications for for what that opens up and, and basically, you know, showing, you know, at anyone's request, you know, your, your medical history um, and, and, and sort of the, the path that leads it down. And one of the, the concerns that I've, I've had for a while now is that people are forgetting history and where, you know, once something like that becomes 
mainstream and, and, and it's used, then the, the next time it needs to be used and then the time after that is when you really need to be worried, you know, and what that looks like. And um, there seems to be this kind of furore that we'll do anything to avoid another lockdown, but at what expense? And when government and big tech come together to build these tools, you know, in the old days it was all paper and, you know, there was this sort of, different parts of the of the of the government didn't talk to the to each other and so there was this um freedom in, in some respects but now when it's all centralized and uh i remember there was a thing actually from australia a while back the the robo robo debt i don't know if you that was something you're aware of yeah uh, i don't really follow the australian news that much but that was a that was a pretty bad example of tech going wrong what was that it was um it was a system to basically try to claw back welfare payments from people, um, an automated system, and it ended up just targeting, uh, really disproportionately targeting um, disadvantaged people, but also just not working properly. Uh, yeah, I think one of the challenges was that it was bringing in information from different sources and different parts of the government, which meant there were sort of these these black holes, that, uh, you know, and, and it was automated so it was, it was you know just sending out bills that you know you need to pay this or it might have even been just taking the money out of people's accounts i can't quite remember but it was quite uh dystopian um, yeah and it's hard to stand up to stuff like that when you get something that looks official i mean it's like this thing i kept looking at this participation survey to try and figure out whether it was compulsory mm. um and you know i went to do it and i didn't want to finish it and then we got a copy a paper copy in the mail saying it looks like um, not everybody your residence completed the participation survey. Yeah. And I'm like, but is this thing, is it compulsory? Like, um, do, you, do, you, do you think there's been a, a change in language? I mean, one thing, the reason I mentioned that is one thing I've noticed is the way governments talk about themselves. And so, you know, obviously we're, we've got this, this pandemic and lockdowns and all sorts and even just regarding these these vaccine certificates, you know, the, these papers that you need to be shown on demand, the way the language is used on the website to to describe it, there's no subject. It's not you or I. It, it just papers. You know, the vaccine certificate needs to be shown. But the the, the 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 specific legality when you see something on a government website, you think, well, this must be because it's the law. But they can say whatever they want. You know, here's your compulsory participation survey. But under what legal framework am i obliged to fill that out uh is, is not clear and so there's this almost pseudo legal layer of web web text that kind of explains what you need to do but it's not actually the law yeah the the the, the digital copy that that holds us from reality that, i think um look i think this again this is part of a sort of a longer trend you look at the way like, what is it the British Rail calls passengers now? You're not a passenger, you're a client. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> or, yeah, there's there's some there's something when you're on a train, you're you're not a passenger anymore. You know, you're a, you're a client. Or, you know, you've you've a, you're a customer of the service, right? Mm. Um, and I think this kind of language has been has been shifting for some time. Um, I think you're definitely right that. That um, the governments are changing the way they speak about themselves and the way they speak about us. But I think also the other thing is it's just kind of hard sometimes to find like good exp 
explaining reporting or information about things. Um, so like with things, cause I mean, I'm generally on the side of, um, things like, like being able to demonstrate that you've been vaccinated in order to travel, in order to access a whole bunch of things. I think we need to do that. And I think there's been, um, I mean, I, I mean, I wasn't born in Australia. I was born in Chile. So immigrating to Australia, we had to show our vaccination papers in order to emigrate, mm. um, and traveling around the world, you know, I've had to show vaccination papers in various countries that I've traveled to as well. So I don't see that as problematic. But I feel like the sort of the detailed nuance of the conversation, it's often hard to feel like, it's often hard to find where can I tune in to kind of hear the detailed nuance of the conversation and the technical language. And like you said, the legality of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's not always easy. I think we have a we have an increasingly coarse environment when it comes to um, communication and news, um, and sort of the blurring of of opinion from explanation. If you want to use that kind of language, where do you get your news from, Fernando? Um, from a multitude of places. So, um, I mean, I, I do rely pretty heavily on the sort of classic East Coast New York, East Coast US stuff. Um, I read the Washington Post. I read the New York Times. Um, I read the Atlantic, which I think has had some of the best pandemic reporting, um, sort of straight up long form essays, talking to epidemiologists and people like that. They've been ahead of a bunch of ways that the pandemic has shifted over the last year and a half. Um, the New Yorker, the New York Review of Books, um, and then what I tend to like to do as well as much as I can is uh, go on Twitter, find editors who work at uh, newspapers that I that I quite like or that I know of and look at the lists that they have, their sort of like topic specialisation lists. So, for example, the Atlantic's politics editor, uh, in the run-up to the U.S. election, he had a list that was called "People Who Actually Know Something," um, and it was just local journalists in states. So it w- wasn't really anybody who was covering the national election race. It was like somebody who does a lot of reporting about redistricting in Georgia, for example, um, or you know somebody in Michigan who tends to cover a lot of local politics in Michigan. Um, and it was crazy because um, on the night of the election, you could turn CNN on and they're sort of guessing whatever else. And then these people are all just spitting the latest numbers from the place that they're in um, and explaining, well, you know, this district hasn't come in yet. Um, and in, you know, in this year, it went this way and in this year it went this way. Um, and so there's those kind of tools. I think if you're crazy about knowing what's going on and willing to invest a lot of time in doing it you can sort of build up a bit of an information base but even that that's just that's just the slice i've made um i'm not sure that's always right you had a really nice tweet recently i went i went through your twitter and you said that um one really good way to use twitter is to to make a list of people who really inspire you and post really original content um and then for a whole week you recommended only read that list on twitter 
I really, I really enjoyed that. That was such a nice idea. Yeah, I think um, I think it's interesting. Twitter is um, is really quite customizable, and I think sometimes people feel like you just have to go in there and just it happens to you, um, and you have no control over it. Um, lists are great because you can just simply tune into um, certain kinds of people. You can um, tune into people without necessarily following them. Um, so this list, for example, I saved the, the one that I mentioned, but, you know, it's just there if I'm ever curious. Mm. I can go in and dive into something like that. The one that you mentioned, I think that's really important, you know, just um, because I think the like in life the people you surround yourself with is, you know, hugely important right yeah we are the sum of the five people that we spend most time with right yeah i I think jim Rohn got that completely right um you know twyla tharp said that um the best predictor of who you'll become is the books you read and the people you meet yeah and and i I guess along those lines i mean something that i've definitely noticed for myself is that um, a lot of the negativity and the fear that exists in the mainstream media and, and also in social media uh, it, it has this this profound yeah effect on me. It's, it's just sort of it can hit you, and um, you, you know the, you almost need to take on a media diet um, as you you know go through the the, the journey of creativity. Because really, that's um, you know what what we're really interested, or I'm really interested in, is how in this uncertain time um, when no one really knows what's going on, impossible to really fully encapsulate what is every single thing that's happening in the world. Uh, how can we as creative practitioners follow our passion and maintain that passion and not let this external thing um, blow blow the flame out? Because it, it seems like it's just it's somewhere else. And if you just turn it off, you can focus on what's important. How, how do you find you, you manage the, the media diet for yourself? I think, I mean, I think you've got to really think about um, how much you allow it to be random. Um, and I think, I mean, I, I used to love, um, I, I used to love when I was in, in Tokyo, I would like, you'd, you'd log into like something like Twitter, for example, and see a bunch of people complaining about how horrible the world is. Um, and then go outside and go for a walk and see kids playing in the local park, um, you know, and see grandparents supervising them and see people shopping and see neighbours chatting. Um, so I think having an attention to your your local environment and coming back to your local environment, like I've talked about the park, for example, you know, or the garden where you, where you live or your own home or your own practice. And I think being in, in that space, I think it's very easy to just constantly be on this feed, right? And that's mediating reality for you. Um, and your your primary reality is here where you are. I mean, like I said about the writing, for example, in the last year and a half, that's the, the thing I could do in that space. Um, you know, and in, in this space, I've got, you know, I, I have real control about what I can do in this space. You know, some politician from another country isn't in this room with me right now. Yeah, that's it's interesting you mention that because it really, I really respond well to that. You know, um, and and I remember back also to my time in in Tokyo, and 
you know, we, there was a lot of stuff happening. We had missile launches from North Korea. We had everything, you know, yeah. but it was, it, you know, back then everything was happening in, in, say, New Zealand seems so far away. And now in New Zealand, you know, what's happening over there that seems a bit further away and what's happening here seems a lot more mm. close, but it's still, it's it's out there. They're not in here. Um and you know, uh, you know, today I thought, you know, um, you know, I go out. I went for a walk. It was a bit of a, a miserable uh, Wellington uh, spring day, but uh, you know, overcast and windy. But I went out, got out of the house, went for a bit of a walk over the hill, and did a bit of writing in, in, in the cafe and whatnot. And it was really just um, great to get out and see people, you know. And in a way, you, you know, that feeling when you're you're writing and you're kind of imagining, you know, for fiction, you know, you're imagining and, and kind of world building in your mind. In a way, you know, kind of hooking onto this media feed, it's it's kind of hijacking that transformative, imaginative aspect of your mind, and and it's using it against you. And so you you're kind of creating these demons in your mind that are not really there. You're letting the anxiety and the the negativity get you, but it's it's really you know you just can just turn it off and and re- repurpose it. Yeah, I think there's um. You know, I, I don't want to sound like there aren't a lot of bad things in the world that we should be concerned about, um, but I think part part of what our digital devices do is they make it very easy to blur the edges around our activities and to turn everything into a crowd, kind of brown doom scrolling experience. So I feel like, like for example, for email for me, I don't do email every day. You know, and I try really hard not to do email every day. And when I do email, I do email and then I'm finished. Like it has a certain amount of time. Because if you think about domestic chores, I mean, if you spent all day washing dishes, like one of your friends would pull you over and go, hang on, is something going on here? Do you, you know, you can stop washing the dishes after a while. Um, And it's the same with news. I think, you know, I think Twitter is a fantastic platform, but it's a terrible way to consume news. It's really good in an event. So when there's an earthquake in Japan, for example, it's great. You can, you know, quickly find out where was the earthquake, what did people experience, was it worse than what I had? And But then you, you're, you're gone again. Um, but staying on there for, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, however long, just scrolling through news, um, you'll eventually hook onto something horrible to obsess about. Um, it's, it's more likely to float to the top, uh, you know, the, the sort of the amount of negative stuff out there is, is vastly outweighs the, the good in terms of the, the way the media show it, in, in, you know. Um, and the algorithm pushes the negativity to the top a, a couple of times. I mean, one of the things we saw with the, um, the Facebook whistleblower lately, recently, um, was the way the algorithm weighted engagement in favour of people being angry about stuff. So, you know, I think it's not serving our interests. So I think if we're, if we're interested in safeguarding our creativity, then we actually have to safeguard, you know, how much news do you want, consume that much, and then go and do something else. Do you think there's been a, a fragmentation of people's attention spans as well with this kind of... T- uh, tidbit of of media consumption. I I wonder about that. I mean, um, there was an interesting. I mean, last week I heard a really interesting stat from the. Um, it was a, a conference speaker, and they were from 
I think they were from the e-payments um, and global global e-commerce and payments practice of Accenture. And they were saying that in China, 30% of people on social media identify themselves as creators. 50% identify themselves as curators. And 20% identify themselves as just passive consumers. Whereas in the US, 1% identify themselves as creators. 9% identify themselves as curators. And 90% identify themselves as passive consumers. Wow. Um, now, we all know that if you go to a social media platform as a creator, you've already had to spend a bit of time doing something, right? So actually your, your attention's not necessarily totally fragmented by the experience because you've, been, you've had to focus on making something first. Um, uh, but if 90% of people are passive consumers, then, then sure, that does look an awful lot like it's just, you know, a hyperactive hive mind going on online to be distracted right um and i think maybe there's there's something in that about how we could rethink some of these kind of platforms and the way we talk about them um because if you're you know in order to create you have to be concentrating yeah i mean that's something that i I find really interesting you know trying you know i'm working on a novel myself and, and doing a lot of different things and you know, today it's um, you know three hours sitting in the corner of a of a convenience store with an eaten uh, eaten section where I can just sit there writing. You know, and you know yeah. there's a few little distractions here and there, but for me to engage in the work to really go into this world that I'm building uh, in my mind and, and trying to write about, it takes this kind of um, active um, focus and to get into that world, and it only takes a little thing to take you out of it. Um, mm. And this this kind of meditative state, which I remember someone mentioned that uh, Tarkovsky's films kind of induce this kind of sort of s- somewhere between almost drifting off to sleep and being conscious. And you kind of that's the space where the the creativity kind of emerges. It's not this very logical clinical mindset which you might have when you're doing writing an email and you're kind of trying to craft the language. It's more like this kind of dreamlike state. I don't know, maybe it's like a flow state or, or something like that. And it's it's almost a, a, a mythical thing. And if you're tweeting about something as you're doing it, or you're trying to hustle your project as you're trying to do it, it, it almost seems like you're you're doing both things wrong. <laughs> mm. Yeah, Cody, do you have a do you have a sort of way to get into your meditative state of working of writing? Like, do you have um, I guess like a ritual or something that gets you ready for the creative process? I um I'm I'm still trying to formalize that. I'll tell you when I find out. But I guess <laughs> one of the the big things for me definitely this year has been just this realization that time is short. You know, life is short. Things need to be done. You know, um, I don't know, F- Fernando. What about yourself? When you're creating, I mean, what what does your engagement with your kind of creative side look like? Um, I think I think the thing that's really important for me is is not opening up that opportunity for is knowing that I'm not going to be interrupted. Um, it's interesting in terms of my writing practice, for example, I feel I write most mornings. Um, it averages out about six times a week. Um, and it's evolved. I wrote a piece on my blog about sort of how the writing practice evolved over the years in in connection with being a parent and a whole bunch of things. It was a, 
a moment in the day that I had was early in the morning to write. Um, but I am pretty much running from my bed to my iPad in the morning. Um, and I'm trying as much as I can to not interact with anybody or anything. So if I could get away with not having breakfast and writing, I would. Um, but I, I flag pretty quickly. So I just, I, I wake up, I put a gin bay on, I go to the kitchen, I make myself a basic breakfast. It's pretty much the same every day. Um, some muesli, some yogurt, some fruit, um, some kind of cold meats. And I pour myself a big glass of water and I sit down and I start writing. Um, and there's nothing really in my head at that point. Um, I've usually set up my workspace I write in Scrivener so I know where I'm picking up from um, I've usually got a few different things that I'm writing at the same time but I've pushed one to the top the day before and it's like this is probably where you should start and I usually start there and I just write um, for about an hour and a half do you listen to music at all um, I have a playlist of instrumental music it's uh some jazz, some soundtrack music, um, some folk stuff, some Indian classical music, and that's on shuffle and that list hasn't changed for about 10 years. Oh, that's nice. It's about 100 tracks and it's like n nothing is slower than about 70, 80 BPM, nothing is faster than about 130, but it is all instrumental. Yeah, instrumental is important. I definitely can relate to that. I've got a, I find I actually have pieces that go with um, different projects that I'm writing. So with with my novel, it's uh, uh, two or three, uh, three hour ambient music mixes, very slow morphing, just sound, you know, just harmonies pretty much. Um, and those have been getting me through over the last two years. Um, and they're, they're quite a nice chunk of time because it is two to three hour pieces and when that finishes then I, I, I've kind of finished um, writing I guess uh, that session and uh, Scrivener I can attest to that as well it's what I write with and it's, it's a very powerful system um, but it's also very dynamic like I feel like I can just jump in there and it feels like a workbench like I can move things around you know it's 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 quite non-linear if you want it to be you can do notes exactly yeah it's very powerful um, and the early morning thing, I'm, um, I'm interested that you mentioned that because uh, well, it, takes, it must take a lot of discipline when you've got a, a family and, and children and whatnot to kind of find the time and make the time uh, to get, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I think, I mean, I, I mean the, the basic reality is that I fell into this when I was living in Hong Kong. Um, my, I used to go drop my daughter off for the school bus at 6.55 in the morning or 6.53, it changed, but around 6.55 was the bus time. Um, but none of the cafes around where I lived opened until 9.30. Oh. So I had literally two hours in the morning with nothing to do. Um, and I would go back to the, I'd go back to my apartment. And I mean, I, I don't feel like playing guitar at seven o'clock in the morning. I know like, you know, maybe someone like Tommy Emmanuel just wakes up and pulls a guitar over and starts playing. Um, but I don't feel like making music at that time of the morning. So I just started writing. Um, and there was nothing else to do. Like I couldn't, 
make an appointment with anyone or, you know, go to the bank or everything was closed. Um, so I thought, well, I'll just, I'll just write. And that was a, a time where I was really trying to unlearn my academic writing voice and acquire a sort of creative nonfiction kind of voice. Um, and it was great for that. Yeah. That, that, tell me more about that. Like, what, what do you mean by that, your academic voice? Well, I was, I mean, the last time I lived in London, I was an academic. I was doing, I was, uh, I was working in uh, philosophy of religion and I was doing a PhD in moral psychology and how ethics is taught in universities. Um, and my, my academic voice was, you know, this kind of very literary, postmodern, impressive sort of language. Um, I was really externalising every sort of repressed emotion I had about growing up as an immigrant kid in Australia and feeling othered because I, you know, if I ever displayed a lack of command of the language. And I was just pouring that into these really sort of terse, complex, difficult to read um, essays and articles. And then when I when I quit academia, um, I thought, well, I, I'd like to keep writing. And this is where I started my blog. But I found it really hard to just write in a way that sounded like something a human would say. I'd, I'd learnt this sort of way of writing that is the the sort of sort of social sciences approach to language. And it took me a few years to really get back to the point where I could write a couple of hundred words in a way that was understandable. And it, and it involved a lot of actually a lot of slowing down. Mm. Um, I think we don't kind of talk enough about um, because you're asking about like, you know, getting into the mindset for creativity. I think we don't often talk enough about slowing down. I remember when I started doing calligraphy in Japan, I would go along to the calligraphy classes and I would set everything up really quickly, you know, and I'd be ready to go. Uh, and everyone else, it was only ever a small class with two or three other students. They're all just taking their time like getting the paper out, getting the books out, preparing the ink, doing the whole ink thing. Um, and I thought, hang on, like I'm really kind of doing this the dumb way here because <laughs> I'm not ready. I'm still jittery. I'm still like, I'm still Tokyo traffic is still inside me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and you can't bring the brush to the paper when you're still, when you're still in the metro or you're still in the taxi or you're still in whatever else. Wow, that's that's fascinating. It reminds me a little bit, um, you know, when I when I was living in Tokyo, I used to go back to New Zealand, you know, once a year, maybe once every two years, that sort of thing. And I'd go out to see my my father, who lives in the middle of nowhere, uh, mm -hmm. literally. Um, <laughs> and you know, he would always say, you know, you're still on Tokyo mode, because you know, that for him, life was you know the the meandering stream down by his house and the, the honeybees and the, the the Angus cattle out the back, you know, and yeah maybe, you know, we go shoot a goat or something. And it would take, you know, a little while for me to kind of come back down and, and to do one thing a day was like a, 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 that, that was it, you know, whether it's mowing the lawns or rounding up the ducks or, or whatever, you know, that, that was the day's work done. And then everything else was just, you know, the, the, the beginning and the end of that one thing. Um, and it's, it's a, just a different pace and it's almost been forgotten and uh, I just have, I sometimes have these memories of, of my time on the subway, on the Ginza subway line, just crammed in with the people. And I think, you know, what? 
now that I've been back in New Zealand for this long and I've kind of like released all of that, I don't know if I could push it all back in again. <laughs> yeah. I think, I, I think there is a different places have a different energy to them. Um, just the same way that like rooms have a different kind of silence to them, you know, silence in each room is, has a different feeling to it and, and places have a different energy and you need to, I think you need to be aware of how that is affecting you. You know, we talked about the way that like digital experiences affect us, but I think the way everywhere affects us. Um, I think part of why I, I do that writing practice that I do is because I think when you wake up in the morning, nothing's really had the chance to affect you yet. So you don't have to decompress from anything. What was the energy in India like? Oh, it was fabulously creative um, and chaotic. I mean, I don't think there's anywhere I've lived where people are more creative and figure out how to solve problems, but it's thoroughly unpredictable. So nothing, you, you just can't trust that anything is going to go the way you think it will. Um you know, from like, you know, where we lived, you could turn the tap on and you might get water, you might get sand. Um, who knows what's going to happen? The internet was fabulously unreliable. Everything was fabulously unreliable. But it was just, I think it's also really challenging because you have so many different people who have so many different ideas about how to live. Yeah, it's... Um, I wish I had taken more photographs when I was there. I really wasn't into photography at the time because you just like, you know, I have images in my mind of, you know, gleaming new shopping malls and a huge stream of uh, religious devotees on a pilgrimage just walking past the front of this brand new gleaming shopping mall or somebody, you know, there's a, there's a new multiplex cinema and, somebody is riding an elephant past the front of it. And I think the, yeah, and, and I think the the art, the, um, the way people are really, the, the kind of non-conformity, the way people are really willing to, to dress in a very vibrant personal way, you know, I think... It's the it's the least conformist place I've lived in terms of how people dress, and particularly in terms of how men dress. The food is fabulous and almost impossible to explain to people who haven't travelled through India, and and the fact that you feel like when you live there you feel like you live on a continent. Mm. Did you retain your creative practice out there? Uh, well, actually, that was my transition period, away from academia back to back to doing something creative. So I was basically just doing music when I was in India. I was trying to write um, and just doing music. So I built a, a little home studio. I started um, studying uh, uh, via distance with Berkeley College of Music. I learned how to use a DAW. So I got into using Logic Pro and Reason. And it was kind of, for me, a little bit like a, a couple of years of sabbatical there sort of rewiring who I was um, learning to be a parent because we had a young kid learning to be a post-academic person whatever that was going to be and and learning how to figure out how to come back to music and and create on a daily basis 
Wow, that sounds a little bit like your journey, Simon, just kind of coming back to music. Yeah, it is a little bit like, you know, I've I've also lived in a couple of countries now so far and always I've been trying to, um, so, you know, I studied, I studied uh, sound art at university um, and I was like, I thought I was going to have this grand career in like film composing or something like this. And then it just didn't really pan out that way. Um, and I spent the next 10 years of my life sort of doing a bit of country hopping and every new country that I would go to, um, I was just trying to refuel my creative juices and it just never happened until Japan. Um, and I think there was something in the air, there was something in the water, it was meeting Cody, it was just being surrounded by, the, I mean, like, you know, Japanese people are super creative right there's a lot of people mm -hmm. who really have their one creative passion and they chase it for their whole lives and and being around that is infectious and and and, and my creativity came out um but something i read in your your twitter bio fernando it says um made in chile grown in australia and polished in japan and i really i love that because it really resonated with me and i think cody also agrees with that like yeah polished is a great word for japan i wonder like did you feel that from india as well did you feel that you were polished in some way in india i think every place if you let it in every place has something really profound to teach you and a way to change you mm. um i think i think india gave me the chance to introspect really deeply it was a place where it was okay to to ask really profound questions and i was trying to unpack when i was there a lot of stuff about um my beliefs and my religious beliefs and my ethics as well as what i wanted to do as a career so i think it gave me it gave me freedom to create freedom to experiment um, freedom to introspect i think hong kong for example taught me how to do business mm. like taught me how to make money Told me that it was okay to talk about money because as a creative money's really weird money conversations tend to be odd but hong kong sort of made me feel like it's okay to talk about money it's okay to ask people for money it's okay to ask people to pay you for your work you don't have to pretend you're willing to do it for free yeah that's uh, interesting because I, I i sort of I, I can i definitely agree with you places can teach you things and and, and people teach you things as well you know and there's things I, I consider myself like kind of like a bit of a magpie you know picking things up here and there and you know I, i've learned things from um you know homeless people i've learned things from uh you know pe people that i've just met on the street different you know friends you know all over the world you know there's, there's little tidbits you know of you know practical things you know how to do something or or, or bigger you know how, how to how to talk about yourself how to ground yourself ideas like that you know um and and you just if you go along you can kind of just pick these things up and put them in your bag if you want and you can try it on and if you don't like it you can kind of you know just you know drop it and, and leave it for someone else but um I think going around with this kind of, you know, magpie attitude, which for people who don't know, it's, I guess, a bit of a crow, right, kind of a bird, and, and yeah. just, you know, it picks up things and then it, it sometimes it drops them, but it uses it to make a nest. And um, I think, you know, approaching that, and, and in this time when, you know, travel is a little bit difficult for, for a lot of people, um, but, you know, it can be challenging because maybe you're, you're in the same place and, you know, you're, you're not getting exposed to new things, but that, it really is just perspective, I guess. You know, where where can you go within what what is possible in your situation to, I guess, you know, expose yourself to new ideas. 
Yeah, and and what's the thing? Figuring out what's the thing in the place that you're in that is great that you can let inspire you. Yeah, what's the lesson? Um, yeah, yeah, because like you know, I mean, if you're in India, for example, and you want things to run on time and you want everything to be clean and you want everything to be reliable, it's going to be a really really hard experience. But if you want to go well. At some point in my life, I have to accept that the world is full of people who don't think the same way I do. It can be a great experience. You know, if you're willing to listen to stories and to listen to where people come from and to the life that they've had, it's pretty amazing. And it, everywhere you could, everywhere I've lived, you could hate it if you wanted to, or you could look for what's amazing about it. You know, Hong Kong, incredible visual city, incredible place to do photography incredible place to learn about design you know in japan the sort of the attention to detail the craft the seriousness like you said the the fact that everybody has some kind of creative passion that they chase really really hard and really seriously and diligently um, that attention to quality and the respect for craft is you know that's available to you if you want to tune into it yeah, yeah. I think you know. Also, just coming back to that kind of magpie thing, you know, of like of picking things up and sort of learning from people. Um, you know what you mentioned about looking for the the good things in places, even when or, or the good things from a situation, right? Even if something seems negative or difficult at the time, um, you know, there's always a lesson or something to be learned from it, and it it kind of is, is part of that polishing process of that kind of character development. And you know, you can almost put these ideas on. And try them on for size, you know. And so, you know, when I was uh, last year, you know, uh, stuck in my hometown, actually, a place I hadn't been for, you know, five years or, you know, and, and it had changed so much. And, and I pretty much got locked down there and uh, stuck with my grandparents, actually. And I was like, you know, from the outside, I was like, oh, man, what's going on here? But it ended up being this profound experience to spend, you know, eight months living with them. And like finding out all of the stuff that I hadn't really connected with since I, since I was a kid. And, um, you know, trying that on and, and just living in a homely place, you know, not being this high-flying Tokyo guy anymore, but, you know, just being back home. Um, and so looking for that and whatever it might be, even, even as a small thing, there's always these kind of these, these nuggets of, of passion and, and positivity that you can find. And it seems like all of the, everything out there is trying to, to push the negative on you, you know, and... And, and something I always come back to is this kind of flame of, of, of your passion. And I think of it as a flame because once it goes out, it really it can be hard to kind of get it back on, you know, and get, get it lit again. But if you can feed it little bits of these, these kind of little bits of fuel, little bits of positivity and passion, you know. I think the, I think the sense of fueling um, your creativity is really important. And sometimes negative experiences can fuel that. Sometimes like bad things can fuel that. I've been doing, this year I've been doing uh, a bunch of memoir writing and I'm not entirely sure what's going to come of that yet, but some of that is reflecting on really bad experiences that I've had in my life. Mm. Um, and But you need to think, with this thing I have, what can I do out of this that's creative? I think the toxicity is like, you know, we I mentioned doom scrolling before, that's the toxicity of social media where you just spin your wheels in the mud and you're not doing anything with it. And I think I've, I've always 
gravitated towards what can you do in a situation? What is a situation teaching you? Because that's your fuel. Yeah. If your environment is feeding you this, it's going to keep feeding it to you. Yeah. And even, you know, good and bad experiences. I mean, I think that there's something to be said in there as well, because I think it's this kind of simplification of, of language and experience where it's like, you know, something's good or it's bad. But I think thinking of something as transformative potentially is, is a way of looking at it, right? And, you know, uh, there's, I mean, we, we've all had things in our, li- in our life that uh, have been difficult, but being able to take them and use that energy and, and being able to transform that into something and, and, and use that to fire your practice. Because um, at the end of the day, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you've got that energy there and, it, and it's bumping around, you know, you've, you've got to kind of find a way to work with it and, and kind of uh, ride that horse of creativity and, and sort of uh, whether, you know, you're, you're, you're galloping or, or, you know, just sort of sitting there. It's, it's kind of, yeah, that, that relationship with that. And, and it's quite a... I don't know. We don't really have the language to describe this. I think you know what I mean, though. But like, yeah, we we don't because we tend to we tend to either or it into like positive or negative. I think transformative is a really good one. I think, I think also, I think there's some language that we should use a bit more often around liberating. We go to inspiring really quickly, but I think sometimes you can you can have a really negative experience that begets a really liberating piece of art. Yeah. I think we have that, you know, music is an incredible form for doing exactly that. Turning terrible experiences into, like turning a terrible experience into a liberating piece of art. Yeah. Um, You listen to this piece of music and it's, it's come from something bad that happened, but it makes you feel a lot of emotions that, we label them as positive, but it's a it's a complex of emotions that you feel in response to the music. Yeah, that's beautiful. It's, it's the, like the flavors, you know, sort of bringing all of these different ingredients together, um, and, and the relationship, you know, because as you say, it's not an either or. You know, they they are all to, it's all connected. And something can um, be angry and beautiful. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's fascinating. Cool. Well, that that was um that was great. I I, I actually felt really uh thank you. Really that was fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it really was, Fernando. Thank you. I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just sort of sitting here and uh, to be honest, I'm a bit sort of stunned with some of the stuff that we've just talked about. It's just it's really why I guess we wanted to um you know you know bring you on and and, and talk to you about this stuff you know and, and seeing your writing because I think this is it's so important right now you know and and a lot of the world's hurting. You know, um, yeah. I can feel it around me, you know, New Zealand, you know, we've got this kind of pseudo lockdown, where is it going to continue? Is it not? You know, it's, there's a lot of uncertainty, uh, a lot of free floating anxiety, I think is what they're calling it. And it sort of gets directed in, in different ways. And it's kind of pantomime of people going about their daily life and continuing the, the routine. But there's also this kind of fear and anxiety that is permeating. And I think, I guess the, the goal of these conversations is to provide a little bit of a light and you know, say a, a, an opportunity to say, look, you know, there is a way to work through this and to harness this and to look forward to what is coming up next and, and have hope and all of those, I guess, positive takes of, you know, developing a practice as opposed to what would be nihilism effectively, if you were to follow what <laughs> all the negativity that, yeah. So, I mean, 
sarcasm and cynicism and snark. Those are the those those are the modalities that often feel like the response to this. And you're right. I think I think we do have something of an obligation. I'm I'm cautious about putting shoulds on other creative people. Yeah. But I think we do have something of an obligation to to audit what we put into the world in this moment. Because you're right, a lot of people are hurting. There's tremendous uncertainty. I think in a lot of ways, 2021 has been harder than 2020. I agree, yeah. Because I feel like 2020, we all just went into disaster mode. And it's like, well, let's let's batten down and cope with this. But now it's like, well, are we are we out of it yet? Are we, where are we? Um, yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, 2020, you know, it was, it was kind of like, yeah, we just get through it and then it'll be over by Christmas, right? That's sort of the... The yeah. thing but now it's like no it's coming back you know and it's it's this long game and i think that's where it's in that long game where people can enter the state of despair potentially and uh, and that's it's a dangerous place to be you know and it's something that you know if anyone's having that that difficulty it's like you know um you know reach out talk to someone and, and work through it because um you know there there is there is hope in, in it um and from all of this i believe that there will be something beautiful will emerge you know um and just on, on that note you know just speaking of hong kong a little bit I, I don't know if this was the time when you were living there but recently a friend sent me um uh, an album uh it's a band called uh, my my little airport and it's just uh, extremely beautiful just um i, I want to say almost innocent just you know from it's probably from about 2007 and just the music very simple very poppy and just it reminds me of the good old days and it almost feels like we've forgotten what that looks like, what that sounds like, what that feels like, you know, and um, with everything happening in the world today, listening to something, I've listened to the album actually, the whole thing. And I just thought, you know, this, this takes me back. It reminds me that there is a, that there was a time when things were a little bit better and there will be a time soon as well when things will be better than they are now. Um, And we will be able to all use this energy and this kind of situation to inform our practice and, um, create great things hopefully yeah i think so as well yeah cool well thank you very much um for chatting with us it was really informative i really appreciate it and um yeah i hope we can maybe do another catch-up at some point but um otherwise uh, all the best with your practice and, and everything you're working on and um it's great that you two are in london maybe you can catch up when you've got time i hope so yeah yeah that'd be good all righty Talk to you later. Take care.